How many of you liked history in school? That's a lot. I was surprised in the first service as well when I asked how many liked history in school. One of those favorite subjects of mine, I didn't do math well, didn't do science well, loved biology for a lot of reasons, but I really loved history. An opportunity to learn from the past. My wife's a history buff. You know those blue and yellow signs everywhere you see in Pennsylvania? She's one of the only people I know that actually reads those. I mean, we'll stop wherever we are, and she wants to read the history of why this is named this, or why this community is named that, why Butler was named Butler, and all of those kinds of things. We will go every once in a while. One time we went to the Football Hall of Fame, and I was done in 20 minutes. I just wanted to see the stuff that was going on. Of course, I know that's hard for you to believe that I could have gone through anything that large in a short amount of time. She actually read every one of the placards. I mean, I could have written five sermons while she was just reading all of those placards, but she wanted to know the history behind why they were there. And what it was all about. Our favorite getaway is Holmes County, Ohio. It's hard for some of you to believe, but the reason we go there is it's quiet. It's the largest continual population of the Amish in the nation. And everything is kind of laid back and we just enjoy it. She's read all the history books about that area and the Amish and why they do what they do. And it's just a fascinating things that you can learn from history. Now, if I were to ask you what we learned from history, we'd have a number of answers. Some of you would have that one in your head that said the only thing we learn from history is what? That we don't learn from history. Is that we repeat our mistakes. That we seem to do the same things. And you all know the history lesson that we try to teach our children sometimes. If you continue to do the same things over and over again, you're going to get the same results. So if you want different results, you've got to do different things. But history can teach us a lot. It can teach us what we learn to do right. It can teach us what we've done wrong. It can teach us how to do it better. It can teach us how to avoid mistakes. And in the lesson you're going to see this morning, it can teach us how blessed we are. Don't you love it when some old person starts a history lesson with a statement like this? Well, in my day, how many of you love those moments? When I wrote that in my sermon notes, all of a sudden it hit me in that moment in my office, I'm one of those old people. I'm one of the, next year I can apply for social security. That's impossible. So all of a sudden when I wrote that statement, I'm going, I'm one of those old people. But I've always heard old people start every single statement with something along the lines, I remember in my day. And then they told us this story of in their day, how they walked to school uphill both ways in 10 feet of snow. Did you ever notice that it was always uphill and it was always 10 feet of snow? When I wrote that statement, I began to think of a couple aspects of how we deal with different generations. And one is this. We who are younger sometimes don't always value the opinion of the older generation. And I'm telling you right now, that's to our detriment. Those of us who are younger don't always value the opinion of those in the older generation. And when they start those stories like that, we kind of roll our eyes or tune it out. But there's a lot we can learn from the other generation. There's a lot we can learn with what they have learned and what they've seen and the experiences they've had. And there are a lot of things that the older generation has to teach us who are not in that generation yet. And so often when we ignore them or put them in that, I've seen that or I've heard that or you're going to tell me another history lesson, we'll miss some really valuable things that they want to share with us. One of the best things God could have ever done for me is to put me in the very beginning of my ministry, right out of college and seminary, with a guy who was ready to retire, Mel Nicholson, one of the best pastors I've ever been around. 62, 63, 64 years old, 
And one of the greatest gifts God could have ever given me was to put me with an older pastor. Down through the ages and all my years of ministry now, I've seen young guys come out of college and seminary like they know it all. And they never ask an opinion. They never ask a question. They never ask for help. They just know it all. They've got all the answers. They know all the answers. And they walk through life without ever taking advantage of those who have been in ministry for a long period of time to ask them any questions. The ones that I gravitate to are the ones who ask. The ones who want to know, who really don't act like they know it all, who want to learn from another generation. Now, let me flip that for a moment. Those of us who are in the older generation need to realize those in the younger generation have a lot to bring to the table. That sometimes if we're not careful, we ignore because of their youth. A few years ago, we made a a pretty significant transition in our elder board, and we brought some 30 and 40-somethings to the table on the elder board. And normally when you think of elder board, you think of everybody 70 and beyond. And now over the last few weeks when I look at that board, or the last few years when I look at that board, I think what incredible valuable information we wouldn't have received or have gotten as an elder board with all the decisions we had to make without those 30-somethings at the table or 40-somethings at the table. We have, interestingly enough, made some transitions in our staff over the last few months. And the other day at senior staff meeting, I looked around the room and realized that most of the people in the room could be our children. I thought, why lands? We've been married 41 years. Most of these people are in their 30s. They could be our kids. And now they're at senior staff and contributing and loving and laughing and sharing and serving. And I thought, what a great thing to watch. These 30-somethings coming to the table with so much enthusiasm and so much passion and so much to give. So to both generations, when you hear those stories in my day, Listen, it may be pretty valuable. And it may be something you'll want to keep forever. And for those of you who are in the older generation, they have a lot to bring to the table. Don't ignore it just because of their youth or because of their age. This morning we're going to have a history lesson. And instead of me giving, it's going to be the Apostle Paul. You're in Acts chapter 13 this morning, so I want you to be here. It's some great things that he teaches us in a really profoundly powerful section of Scripture. I'm going to read it all to you this morning from 13, chapter 13, 14 to 41. So I want you to flow along. And then I, I'll pause just every second or so just because of some of the things that are there. But go back today and reread it again. Just stop long enough. Sit down for a while. Look at this section of Scripture and think, wow, all the things that Paul put into one sermon, one setting, was incredible. Acts 13, beginning at verse 14. Now, they were on their journey, Paul and Barnabas, and they went to city in Antioch. And on the Sabbath, they do what you do. You go to church, right? And so they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them. They knew they were there. They looked around. They said, my goodness, that's Paul and Barnabas back there. Brothers, do you have anything to share? Any of you grow up in a brethren context or that church context where they simply said that at the beginning of a service? Anybody have anything to say? Stand up and say it. Any of you? Can you imagine how dangerous that would be if you were the pastor? That's what they did. Do you have a word of exhortation for the people? Please speak. So Paul did. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand. He said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. 
The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All that took about 450 years. After that, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I found David's son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. What a great statement. Wouldn't it be awesome if God said that about you or me? I, I know him. He'll do everything I ask him to do. From this man's descendants, God brought us to Israel, the Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. People of Jerusalem and the rulers didn't recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. They found no proper ground for a death sentence, and they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried that out, all that was written about him, and they took him down from the cross, they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he'd been seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. You've got to remember, Paul's only sharing this a few years after Christ's resurrection. They're now witnesses to his people to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he filled, fulfilled in us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it was written in the second Psalm, you're my son, today I become your father. God raised him from the dead so that we will never, he will never be subject to decay. As God said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. It was also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin has been claimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you're never able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if I told you or if someone told you. One of the traditions in the early synagogues is when they had a visiting dignitary, they would ask him to say something. They'd ask him to share. Most likely that Paul still had his rabbinic robes on. How many times do you remember somebody coming up to Jesus and saying, Rabbi, can I ask you a question? They recognized that. It was something about them or something about their garb. They knew who they were. And so when Paul came into this context here, they asked him to say something, to share Many times on a mission field, when you either are a dignitary or the older person, they really recognize who you are, and they want to give special attention to you. They'll ask you to speak. They'll give you a gift. I've shared you before, but my dad's one of the most amazing men I've ever met. A few weeks, he'll be 87 years old. He still takes care of a 140-acre farm. He cuts wood and cuts the grass, trims everything up. said to me one day, if you ever come to this farm, those 30 acres out there, I want that fence trimmed just as much as I do. I'm going, have you ever heard of Roundup? Because I'm buying it by the 50-gallon drum. <laughs> a number of years ago, Dad had a harrowing experience with a bull on our barn. Ran him over, bowled him over, sat on top of him, and tried to gore him to death. 
In a miraculous way, God sent a neighbor down with a dog in that car. And when the voice of the dog and the, the, the neighbor began to yell, the bull got up, dad crawled, crawled across the fence and got away. Didn't have a bone broken in his body. Should have obviously died. Put a huge sign up on the barn that said, my help cometh from the Lord. One day a guy was driving by, saw the sign that was 30, 40 feet long and stopped in and said, what's the deal with the sign? Dad told him the story of his testimony and his journey in life. He said, do you care if I share that story? And dad said, with who? He said, I write for guideposts. Dad says, sure. And so he actually wrote the story. Story went all around the world as guidepost does. And one day dad gets a letter in the mail. It says, Mike Kreisick, my help cometh from the Lord Barn Complex, Avella, Pennsylvania, USA. I don't even think it said Pennsylvania, USA. And it got to my dad. He called me up and said, I've been asked to speak and to share my testimony based on the Guidepost magazine. I said, great, where? He said, India. <laughs> I said, isn't the nation up, not Indiana? No, it says India. Do you know where that's at? And I said, yeah, it's halfway around the world. I said, you haven't been further than Ohio. He said, I want to go. I said, you want to go to India? He said, I made a promise to God that I'd share my story everywhere I went. And so we made the arrangements. As only God would have it, I found out that I actually knew the person that wrote to him through a connection at Nyack College and said, Dad, it's legit. They want you to come and share your testimony. And Mom called up and said, Dad needs a visa. You get that at the bank, right? I said, yeah, you do, but this is to let him in the country. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure if they're going to let him in. But yeah, you get a visa from the government to let him in the country. And they applied and he went and it changed his life. He's been on 15 or 18 trips since then. Working a farm, doing all kinds of things. He said, till the day I die or I physically can't do it, I'm going to go over every single year. And now he's been to 15 or 18 countries, multiple trips, and absolutely loved it. In 1992, I knew he was going on another one. There was an opportunity for me to go with him to Mali. And I said to my my wife and my mom, I don't know if I'll ever have these chances because you never know about life. And I, I want to spend one of those moments with Dad. I want to spend one of those experiences with Dad. It was two weeks long, a week too long. But it was two weeks long. We land in Mali, and all of a sudden you look around. There's a half a dozen pastors and my father and some other guys, and Dad's the oldest guy in the group. And the first thing they want to do is honor him. And so out of all the people that are there, he's the most honored to every place we went. One of the last places where we went to build the clinic, they gave him a chicken and a goat. I said, what are you going to do with a chicken and a goat? I said, I don't know. I'm not sure how I can get it back in a plane. Only my dad would even think to try to do that. (laughs) One time when he goes over there, he gives everything away when he goes, and he brings back a duffel bag. That's all he brings back. So he brought back souvenirs. Guess what they were? A machete and a hatchet. He put them in his duffel bag (laughs) on the plane. How far do you think that went? (laughs) To Belgium, and then he was arrested. I know, just that's a whole nother story. I won't even go there. We, somehow we got him back. So I went up to the missionary. He said, what am I going to do with a goat? He said, well, you, you won't have to worry about taking him home. I said, why is that? He said, he's our final farewell meal. I went, oh. In our culture, we don't always respect those who are aged or have a lot to offer. In many other cultures around the world, they highly value them. And when Paul walked into an auditorium setting of any kind, they're going to listen. And Paul says, I've got a chance to share, and I'm going to share. 
I'm going to tell you one of the most amazing stories you can imagine. I want to say to you right up front, the history lesson that I want to teach you is confined to this particular statement. God is active. God is involved. God is in control. Always has been, always will be. When you wonder about that, I want you to know right up front, our God, the God, the God of the universe is active. He's involved and he's in control. From Abraham to Armageddon, these things are true about God. In our greatest triumph, these things are true. In our deepest trials, these things are true. When you thought you were in control, God was in control. And when you thought life was out of control, God was in control. On the darkest day of human history, when Christ was being nailed to the cross, when it looked like evil was winning, ringing down through the corridors of history, the apostle Paul is saying, God is active, God is involved, God is in control. And I want you to know that right up front. Now that's a great history lesson I want to listen to. And so Paul begins to share and clarify. Look at verse 17. All the way down through those first number of verses, as you see the text, verse 17, God shows. 17, God led. Verse 20, God gave. 22, God removed Saul. 22, God gave them David. 23, God brought a Savior. 30, God raised him from the dead. Do you see the pattern there? God is active. God is involved. God is in control. Every time I read Psalm 136, one of the most memorable verses in all the, New, in the, all the Old Testament, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Why? His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, the God of gods. Why? His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts. Give thanks to the God of wonders. And the endless list goes on. And in every phrase he says what? His love endures forever. It is so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to get consumed with our issues and forget the blessings of God. And so every once in a while, God himself or the Apostle Paul walks in to say, look, just when you think things are bleak, just when you think the world's out of control, just when you don't know what's going to happen next, and just when you think the end is near, I want you to know God is in charge, God is involved, God is active, and God is in control. Break the text down a little bit. Verse 17. God has been taking care of us from day one. Just in case you forget that, just in case you're not sure of that, just in case in the middle of your dark moments you wonder about that, let me just clarify. God has been taking care of you from day one. Scripture says, I knew you in the womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully handmade and handcrafted by God. I know every one of your days on this planet. God has been with us and taking care of us from day one. When the Israelites were facing the darkest period of history, God was doing something behind the scenes. When they couldn't figure out what was going on, God was making them a great nation. I'm sure at some point in your life, you've walked through those deep, dark moments wondering, God, what are you doing? Why this? Why now? What do you want to do? What do you want to teach? And every so often, God may open the curtain or back up for a moment, or I'll have to go back to a scripture and see what he's done and what he is doing. I don't know if you read the Daily Bread on a regular basis. There was one of the most captivating stories this week about George and Minnie Lacey. 1904, they were missionaries to Mexico, if you didn't read the rest of the story in another context. And in that context, their youngest daughter fell ill. And then as the story went on in rapid succession, every single one of their children died. Number two, number three, number four, number five. All of scarlet fever, all before the next year. I read that story, and I stopped there at that moment, and I said, God, that can't be true. And obviously it was. What was fascinating about the story is that they wrote a letter back to their mission board, 
and said, sometimes it seems like more than we can bear. And then they added this, but the Lord is with us and wonderfully helping us. Helping you. Your children died. Helping you. Yep. He gave them everything they needed and to sustain them through it all. I looked up the rest of the story. They retired 48 years later. And at their retirement, they were able to look back and trace the history of all of the children and the orphanages they had started who were now following Christ. Sometimes when we only look at this little snippet of time or this moment in history and we wonder, God, why? I don't get it. God will give us the courage or maybe the insight or whatever's necessary to back up a little bit and say, oh, you're in charge. You're in control. I'm going to trust you. Verse 17. By his, by his mighty power, he led them out. Now, in that context, there he's talking about the Israelites. There's a fascinating way that you ought to study Scripture every once in a while. Let's look at other versions. I, I just, I was captivated by the end of Duffy's message last Sunday morning when he read a very familiar section of Scripture out of the message. I've read the message a half a dozen times. I missed that one. All you are weak and weary laden, come unto me, come unto me. All you are weak and weary laden, and I will give you rest. I know that out of King James. He read it out of that passage, and I thought, oh, I've got to do that more often. This section of Scripture here, he, by his mighty power, he led them out. In the Revised Standard Version, it said, with his uplifted arm. It literally means God flexed his muscles. In the middle of their darkness, in the middle of wondering what was going to happen, God flexed his muscles. And when God flexes his muscles, people get delivered and set free. I looked at that, and I thought, what a fascinating word picture. My wife and I are NCIS fans. We love Gibbs, we love Denosa, we just love watching it. If you've ever watched it on Monday, you know the thing they're setting you up for is WrestleMania, the dumbest thing I've ever seen on television. If you like it, I am so sorry. <laughs> I just think it's some of the dumbest stuff I've ever seen on television. We wonder why our society is so violent when we look at those cage fighting and they beat the daylights one and out of one another, and we call that entertainment. But I do see them setting it up, so I'm going to watch it, which I don't, by the way. I don't know if you know why, because I think it's the dumbest thing. Never mind. So anyhow, these guys, and I, and I watch them setting it up, and I see these two guys looking across this cage or ring from one another, and the very thing they're doing, they're not beating each other up, they're not doing anything, they're just flexing their muscles. They're trying to intimidate the other person. They're trying to get across to them, I'm going to take you down. I'm tough enough, I'm going to beat you up. I'm so strong, you don't have a chance. And then I remember growing up with that classic phrase that we all grew up with at some point or the other and said, my dad can take your dad. <laughs> right? And believe me, my dad could. At 80 years old, he said, I can still take you. And I honestly believed it. I look at a section of scripture like this and see that context when it said, God flexed his muscles. And I find myself saying, Satan, I want you to know you think you're tough. My father is stronger than you. And no matter what you bring at me, no matter what you come with, your demons need to know that my father is bigger and stronger than your father. It may seem like childlike faith, but then I remember Jesus saying, unless you become like a little child, you'll never get it. And so every so often in the middle of the enemy just waging war at me, flexing his muscles, I want to look him in the eye and say, I just want you to know my dad's stronger than yours. Verse 18, he endured their conduct. 
In Greek, which I don't know honestly very well, but I see it in commentaries, there's a, a little line that goes over certain phrases. And when it goes one way in this context in verse 18, it means to tolerate or put up with. And if it goes the other way, it means to bear them or carry them, to get underneath them. Most people think in this particular context, it's more of that one. You may not have the original context, but Deuteronomy 131 says, In the wilderness you saw how the Lord your God carried you, like a father carries his son. Any of you remember those moments of what it was like to pick up your son, your daughter? Hug him and hold him. I'm going to share in Christmas Eve. I'm not even going to tell you what it is, but I, first time ever in my history I've gotten a Christmas Eve message already from the Lord as to what I want to share in Christmas Eve. But I now have the gift of being a, being a pap. And for the last few days we've had our youngest grandson with us, and the kid has me right here. Do you see what it's done to me already? I mean, he just has me here, and 6.30 in the morning, three days this week, I can hear, Pap! Hey, Pap! 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 6.30, I'm in a coma. I'm not fully awake until my second cup of coffee, and Pap! Pap! Like he's falling out of bed. He's not at all. He just wants me to know he's awake. And I run in, and he jumps in my arms, and I hold him. The kid's three and a half. He can walk. But man, I just want to hold him, and I want to have him near Connie and I have talked about the fact that down through the ages, you so often think that the time that you're on your knees the most is when your children are babies. And then all of a sudden they grow up and start into school, and then you find yourself on your knees again, and then all of a sudden they're in junior high, and you're really on your knees. Then they're in high school, and then college, and then a possibility of marriage. And especially if you have girls, and some gorilla is going to be with your daughter for the rest of his life, you want to make sure that you've prayed real hard. And then all of a sudden you have grandchildren. And you're back on your knees. I love the word picture that Paul gives here. God carried you like a father carries his son. Like a father carries his child. And there's nothing more enjoyable as a parent or a grandparent than holding that one in your arms and being able to let them know no matter what you're going to face, no matter how tough it is, no matter how hard your journey is going to be, I got you. And I'm there for you. I love the word pictures that Paul paints. So often in prayer, we talk to God, and many times we need to stop every once in a while and listen and let him talk to us, and so often he does it through his word. Right somewhere in your Bible or, or in your bulletin, Psalm 30, just a beautiful section of Scripture where David says, I exalt you, God. You lifted me up out of the depths. You didn't let my enemies gloat over me. When I called to you for help, you helped me and healed me. You brought me up from the realm of dead. You spared my life from the pit. I sing praises to you. Anger lasts for a moment, but your favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for a night, but joy or rejoicing comes in the morning. I'll never be shaken when I feel secure in you. Lord, you have favored me. And he goes on to say near the end, help me. Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. You've been my help. You've turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and you clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, I will forever praise you. In verse 19, he said he drives the enemies out. He takes them on. The battle belongs to the Lord. God is on my side. It isn't a reminder it, when the battle rages. It reminds us of what God has done all the way down through the ages. In verses 20 to 22, he reminds us again of the insights that they needed to have about what God has done, sometimes giving them what they want, sometimes what they need. I've often wondered about that in the political process in our nation at times down through the ages. If every once in a while, and I know Scripture very clearly said God sets kings up and sets them down. 
But I find myself wondering sometimes, is God giving us what we want or God giving us what we need? And at some point, I think this nation is going to find itself on its knees before Almighty God saying, okay, I get it. We need you. In this context, he reminded them of what God has done. You wanted the judges? I gave them to you. You wanted a king? I gave you one. Didn't work out well, did it? And so I continued to carry you and walk with you in that whole journey. And I eventually gave you the greatest promise of all, a Savior. In the middle of that section of Scripture, I had to pause on verse 36. Because I recognize it's one of the most powerful statements ever made about a human being. David is the second most well-known guy in all the Old and New Testament. And Paul sums up his life, his entire life, one of the most well-known characters in all of Scripture in two verses. He did whatever I knew he would do what I asked him to do, and he served the purposes of God in his generation. I say this to maybe only one of you, and I'm not even sure who you are, but I want to say this as lovingly as I know how. You're going after the wrong things. Now, only God's Spirit will tell you if that's you. But I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, if you're one of those pursuing fame and fortune and all that goes with that, you're going after the wrong things. And you'll find at some point in your life that you're still empty and have nothing. And deep down inside, no matter what you've tried to use to fill all those holes in your life, nothing will but God. David realized in all of his failures and all of his strong points, he realized That as you sum up his life, he served the purposes of God. Out of all the things I would want to be known for, I would want to be known for someone who served the purposes of God. I knew what it was. I knew why I was here. I knew what God was calling me to do. Not in ministry or not as a missionary, but just as a servant of God, living him out everywhere I go. I grew up in the CNMA, and so the epitome of spirituality was to be a missionary. You wanted to be called by God. That was the only way to do it. You wanted to serve the purposes of God. That was the only way to do it. And so I went that way. I went that direction until one day God says, look, I just want you to follow me. I just want you to serve me. Whatever that looks like and wherever I place you, I ended up driving truck for two years, which is a great opportunity. I just want you to serve me. In every environment, in every context, all across this auditorium are people who are, have the potential of serving God in their moment, at their time, for the right reason, and to have had their life finished in that generational time frame to say, he, she, served the purposes of God right where they were. I thought, what a great thing to be known for. Not for all the other stuff that so often we're hearing in regards to success. I grew up when success was the deal. And then somewhere around the 80s or 90s, they said, whoa, wait a minute. We were going after the wrong things. It's significance. It's making a difference. It's making an impact. It's loving and caring and sharing and giving in whatever environment God places you. It's like Mordecai who says to Esther, look, this is your time, girl. You've been placed here for such a time as this. Don't lose the moment. It'll go so fast. In the grand scheme of humanity, our life is extremely short. The psalmist says 70, maybe 80. If it is beyond 80, there's a lot of strength, labor, and sorrow that goes with that. But in the grand scheme of humanity, our life is very short. So my encouragement to you is to say, God, whatever that looks like for me, I want to be able to know that when somebody stands up and talks about my life, whether it's Denny or somebody else, I want them to be able to say, this man, this woman, this gal served the purposes of God to her generation and is gone. Unless somebody else is going to pick up the mantle. That's a pretty good thing to be known for. 
I love Jesus' prayer in John 17, one of the most amazing prayers anyone could have ever prayed. But there's a verse in there that said, Father, I've done everything you've asked me here to do. That's amazing. To be able to be that certain of your call and what you're asked to do. I mean, if I look at it from a human standpoint, I'm saying, Jesus, you got 12 guys, and I'm not even sure if they're going to continue to follow you. A lot have left. A lot of people that need healed yet, and yet you really can confidently say, I've done what you've asked me here to do. And he would say to me, I did, because I knew what it was. Do you know what yours is? You know what your purpose is? You know why you're here? Obviously, to glorify God and all of that, but wherever he's placed you, use it well, use it wisely. He's placed you there for a specific reason, to reach people around you that no one else will, that I'll never see till we get to glory. But he put you there for a purpose and a reason. Enjoy that. Verses 26 to 33 tells the story of Christ. I just want you to know why Jesus came. I want you to know what God did. I want you to know what he offers. And when you read that story in those few short verses, you find yourself saying, oh, my lands. God, out of all this grand scheme of history, I, here, 2,000 years later, get the opportunity to sit on this side of the cross. I'm not one of the Israelites who wondered, when is it going to happen? When will God ever come? When will the Savior come? We've been waiting for century after century after century. All we do is look forward to something. All we are doing is looking forward to salvation. And you and I, sitting here 2014, can say, God, thank you. I'm on this side of the cross. I know it's true. I know what you have done. I am certain you have come. I am certain you died. I know you rose from the dead. And I am unbelievably delighted in what you offer me. Salvation and grace and forgiveness, justification, all the things that your law couldn't do, Jesus did on a cross. And he offers forgiveness and grace to all of us. All of our sins wiped away. What an unbelievable gift. You and I could have been born at any other time in human history. But we're born on this side of the cross. And we have the opportunity to look back and say, oh, thank you, God. I know what you did. I know what you came to do. I know what you offer. And I'm honored and unbelievably thrilled to receive it. A couple of weeks ago, we were sitting in Omaha Thursday night. And it was a celebration of what God was doing around the world. And John Stumbo, our president, got up. I shared a story. I can't even tell you where the missionaries were because I'm not allowed. And they were sharing the history of Jesus and the story of his life and came to this point about being justified and having all of our sins forgiven. And a Muslim woman looked and stopped the missionary and said, are you serious? He said, about what? All my sins can be forgiven? All my past wiped away? He said, yeah. I've never, ever heard that. You and I, if we're not careful, take it for granted He said, I've never even heard it. All my sins can be washed away. He said, yeah. If you're here today and you know Christ is your Savior and you understand all that Paul shared in this context, (laughs) it ought to bring celebration to you. All my past is forgiven. Yep. You don't know my past. Come to Christ. It's all forgiven. You don't know my struggles. Everything. Everything. If you know Christ is your Savior, celebrate it. If you don't, receive it. Because it is the greatest gift you'll ever get. 
God, I, I thank you all. I, I, I looked at this section of Scripture, and I thought, what an unbelievable history lesson Paul teaches us in a short chapter. And for those of us that every once in a while wonder what is going on and where is society going and is this world so spinning out of control that it's never going to stop? And then I stop and I look at these reminders and say, yeah, you're in control. Nothing slipped by your knowledge. It wasn't like you were unaware. And so I thank you for the reminders like this morning. I thank you for the gift of salvation that we can so richly receive and embrace and enjoy. And for those of us who are here this morning, may it be one of those things that we never, ever take for granted, that we are given life and given eternity. For that one here this morning who's pushing after the wrong things, still to find themselves empty, may today be the day where they recognize they've searched for the wrong things. And it's in you and you alone. Or that one this morning who never really understood forgiveness and grace, may this be the day they begin that journey with you that will really change their lives for eternity. Thank you again for your word and the power of it. Thank you for the opportunity we have to cherish it and understand it and what you teach us through it. Bless us as we continue to process all that you've taught us this morning out of this section of Scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I kept you long, and I, but uh, I just this is such great truth, and I don't want you to miss it. Please continue to study it. If I can help you in any way, understanding forgiveness and grace, I'd love to do that today. Uh, you come this way, and we'll share for a few moments. God bless you. Have a great, great day.